This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by our partners, Beautio Books. Beautio Books stocks the largest selection of ornithology books in North America, over 2,000 titles available, including field guides, finding guides, scientific textbooks, and family-specific guides. They also offer hundreds of rare and out-of-print books, from bargain-used books to antiquarian volumes. Beauty Books is the place to find that hard-to-find title, and indeed, where you can find many of the books we talk about here on the American Birding Podcast. And more, ABA members get a 10% discount on every purchase. Check them out at beautyobooks.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. As always, I am your host, Nate Swick. Some of you might remember back in the spring when in this COVID-inspired funk I talked about fantasy birding and the yard squad, the local birding competition that I was part of uh, with fellow ABA staff and board. We finished a gentleman's second to last. Uh, Well, I'm doing it again. And my team this time, the Hand Sanitizing Harpies, contains a group of birders from all over the world. We are not just limited to ABA people, and of course, me, Uh, pulling up the rear. And let me tell you, in the spring, living in the Southeast means that I get all the migrants before the rest of my team. So it was sort of satisfying to know that I'd been seeing warblers and I would be adding them to my team's list about a week before all my teammates further north. It made me feel very necessary, very important on this team. So as you might guess, that advantage is completely nullified in the fall, wherein my teammates in Ontario and Massachusetts have been cleaning up all the passer in migration before migration even begins to hit here in North Carolina. I'm recording this in the first week, uh, you know, the eighth. I'm recording this, and uh, we are still a little on the early side of the bump that is fall migration. Uh, and everyone else up in the north, especially those in Ontario and Massachusetts, are in the in the thick of it. So uh, up to now, I have added one species, one to the cumulative team list. That species is yellow-billed cuckoo. And I'll be honest, I don't know how the other members of my team have not seen that yet. But I will keep birding in my five-mile radius, adding birds that other people on my team have already seen. Uh, I still need to get brown-headed nuthatch. That is like the one species I think that I am the only person that can easily get uh, and which have uh, frustratingly been very silent in my neighborhood in the last couple weeks. Uh, And I will continue to add random trees to the iNaturalist portion of the competition because we're getting killed on that part too. Consider this a public, not a call-out, but a booster. Come on, harpies. I know you're listening. We got this. We're not that far behind, and I'll try to find something more than just a a yellow-billed cuckoo. On the show this week, it's the Birding Book Club. We're back, and we are talking about that weird birding-specific genre, the family guide. And no, I am not talking about a field guide that is good for the whole family, though that might be a good topic to cover down the line, too. I'm talking about that identification guide, that reference book that covers just one sliver of of your field guide, but goes real deep into it. One family, or more often like a group of similar birds of multiple families. My bird book buddies, Frank Izagiri and Donna Shulman, are here to talk about 
our favorites. We certainly want to hear about your favorites as well. That's coming up soon. All that after this week's Redbirds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first part of September 2020. We've got some firsts this time around. To start, in Florida, where an apparent eastern yellow wagtail was photographed by a shorebird monitor in Gulf County, unsurprisingly, on the Gulf Coast. This is a potential first record for the state, and despite the best efforts of hopeful birders, it could not be turned into the ABA's first record of western yellow wagtail that we've been waiting for for a very long time. But eastern yellow wagtail, pretty incredible in Florida nonetheless. Pennsylvania's first record of Brewer's Sparrow was banded at Powder Mill Nature Reserve in Westmoreland County. This comes within a few days of Maine's second record of Brewer's Sparrow at Petit Manan, uh, suggesting that something is pushing this species eastward and birders east of the Great Plains should be closely scrutinizing those Spazella sparrows right now. Just speculation on my part, but I wonder if this has anything to do with all the fires across the western part of the continent right now that would certainly potentially push those birds eastward. In British Columbia, a Bell's Vireo was discovered just north of Victoria. That is a provincial first record and one of very few for the Pacific Northwest. Notably, this bird looks like it is from the eastern subspecies, which makes sense given that the western subspecies, which is frequently called least Bell's Vireo, is a federally endangered, though they are increasing, but a short distance migrant. And from Massachusetts, a gray heron photographed from Tuckernuck Island, a private island, is not only a state first, but the first lower 48 record of this Eurasian version of our familiar great blue heron. Previous records come from Alaska, Newfoundland, and earlier this year in Nova Scotia. There's actually some speculation that this bird might be the same bird as was found in Nova Scotia earlier this summer. And last, but certainly deceased, Wyoming's first record of swallowtailed kite was found dead by a game warden in Glenrock, Wyoming. This record is from April 2020, so some time ago, but given the significance of the find and the recent eruptions of swallowtailed kites into the middle of the continent, seems worth noting. Those are all the highlights for the week. As always, for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org rba, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook page at facebook.com groups slash aba rare. You can also follow us on Twitter at aba bird alert. It's once again time for the American Birding Podcast Birding Book Club, and I am excited to be joined again by two of my favorite bird book reviewers and perhaps the only people in North America who can probably be called that. Uh, Frank Izagiri is the media review editor for the ABA's Birding Magazine, and Donna Shulman is a bird media reviewer for the website 10,000 Birds. Welcome once again, Frank and Donna. Very nice to talk bird books with you both. Hello. Hello. So our topic today is family-specific guides, and that probably needs just a little bit of clarification before we get rolling. Uh, When I think about these books, I think about identification guides or reference books that focus specifically on one group of birds frequently, though not always, strictly speaking, family as as defined taxonomically. Uh, How about you? When you hear the word family-specific guide, what do you think? I think... um... Initially, I thought of them in terms of identification guides, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I was especially drawn to them when I started realizing um, one sparrow looks like another sparrow. And um, even though 
Sibley's and all the other uh, North American field guides are very good. It just wasn't quite enough. Um, but then I found out there was more to it. Certainly there are some families of birds that uh, cluster together well um, within different book genres, whether it's like um, identification guides or books mostly focused on um, helping learn tips for uh, advanced identification or also reference guides. So you've got like shorebirds usually come together and that's like, I guess about four families because you've got the sandpipers, you've got the plovers, um, stilts and avocets, uh, turn catchers. Yeah, there's yeah. a bunch of, there's a bunch actually. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and then you've also got like tube noses usually get clustered with a few other, um, pelagic birds. And I guess we can put warblers in that now because yellow-breasted chat was split away from the rest of the warblers ah, where it had been for a very long time. So. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, I was just, th- oh yeah, water birds is another one where you usually have mm-hmm. like ducks, but you know, maybe some other like, cormorants and stuff like that can, can be in there. Um, so, you know, uh, it can be like a little loosey-goosey, no pun intended, um, with, with what, what we mean by family bird books. Um, there's also like one kind of family bird book that I really like. Um, that's a little different than than reference books or um, advanced ID books is um, sometimes you have books about uh, bird families that they, they approach it from from an angle where it's like, you know, there's some cultural commentary on how different bird families are perceived in like a broader sense. Yeah, I have a couple here that, that we can talk about or that, that I can talk about that I think are really neat in that way. What do you both as birders primarily want to get out of a book like this? Do you want it to be that, you know, advanced ID guide? Do you want it to just be a reference book full of nice pictures and great information? I mean, because they can go both ways. All of the above. <laughs> go ahead, Donna. Yeah, all of the- <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say one of the advantages when you get a book that's focusing on a subset of the, you know, 10,000 birds in the world is you get a chance to do a little bit more than the traditional field guide format. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think family guides like the Shorebird Guide by O'Brien, Crosley, and Carlson, uh, the Warbler Guide by Stevenson and Whittle, they're exciting because they give you quizzes and charts. Also add Mm -hmm. Crosley's Guide to Waterfowl and Raptors. The Warbler book, I was just looking it over before this podcast, and I was like remembering, oh, yeah, it has all these great little charts with all those tiny little warblers um, giving (laughs) you the undertail and the overtail and the bills. Um, And they're just fun that way. They make learning fun. So I asked each of you to sort of come up with some favorites, and as with all of these sorts of things, there's definitely some overlap between the three of us. I think we all sort of have, uh, there, there's some very classics of the genre that are on all of our lists. So um, Donna, would you like to lead off with one of your favorite examples of a family guide? You've mentioned a couple already, the ones that are kind of on my list, um, the right. Wobbler guide and the Shorebird guide. Do you have one that is just like a really perfect example of what we're talking about here? Um, well, I'll go back to the Warbler guide. There was already a very, very excellent warbler guide, uh, the Peterson Guide, by mm-hmm. uh, I believe it's by John Dunn. But this warbler guide, which came out when did it in two thousand and thirteen, it sort of turned the whole idea of what you can do with a guide on its head. It 
just bombarded you with information in a lot of different ways, including graphically. It has sonograms of birdsong. It has uh, small little um, icons for each species to tell you about the habitat and other information about them. It's very visual. It uses graphics and photographs to give you a lot of information even before you start to read. Yeah, it's it's a great example of a, a really a novel approach to doing these sorts of books. Because So we're talking about The Warbler Guide by Tom Stevenson and, and Scott Whittle. And Correct. you also mention, uh, appropriately, The Peterson Guide to Warblers by John Dunn and Kimball Garrett, which before we were going to talk together, I started look, pulling out these two books and looking at them. And they're much more different mm-hmm. from each other than I really... I guess realized, especially mm-hmm. when the Stevenson Whittle one came out and sort of changed everything. Sometimes, like I want to go back to the Dunn Garrett one because I think it has a mm-hmm. lot more textual information. And if I want to mm-hmm. get the information that way, I feel like that one is better. That's not to say that um, the Stevenson and Whittle guide isn't phenomenal for a lot of different reasons, but man, like it does not replace the Dunn and Garrett guide like you think it might, but it absolutely, you know, I don't know, amplifies the information available. It enhances the available information about this famously popular group of birds. Right. I think they complement each other. And Yeah, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. And and also a person, mm-hmm. you know, people have different ways they prefer to learn. So one might fit one individual better than the other, but together they're not beatable. But one of the reasons birders love um, these kinds of family books is because they are written with an audience of birders more explicitly in mind than maybe the other kinds of family books we've talked about because they focus on field ID. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And, you know, we like that. (laughs) So, And I think one of the reasons they excite us is because you know, you're a birder and you've been birding for a few years and, you know, you've got field guide, you've got a few field guides and you sort of like reach a stage where you're like, all right, I want to take the next step and become a better field birder or whatever, better at field ID. That's when you start looking like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm like ready for the shorebird guide. I'm ready for the (laughs) warbler guide. You know, it's like, I feel like it's a, acquiring these books in and of itself is a kind of, um, birding milestone for a lot of birders. Uh, like yeah, you know, <laughs> maybe people should start su- submitting uh, little entries to to the celebrations comment. Like ah, oh, the <laughs> celebrations comment. Like oh, I got the I got the sea watching guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I feel confident enough. Yeah. yeah. So I, I do think that's one reason that that we really love these kind of books, and we love to see them on our shelves and just pull them off sometimes and go through and. Wow, and just be amazed at the knowledge that these authors have about how how they can tell apart some birds that are just so difficult to to know. Yeah, it's true. It's almost like birders, we as birders sort of switch how we speak depending on what audience we're speaking to. And so someone like mm-hmm. Sibley or even John Dunn and Kimball Garrett would talk about bird ID in a different way if they were writing a general purpose field guide. And when they finally get a chance to do one of these family-specific guides that really bears down on some of these identification issues, like they can really just like go nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's sharing their information, sharing. It's essentially like a, a literary form of geeking out. 
when you yeah. found your when you found your audience. The pelagic books to me are really like that too, because that's that's mm-hmm. a subset of birders where it's like IDing so many of those birds is so hard because not only are they hard to tell apart, but the conditions can make it so hard. So it's like you really, really gotta be focused in. Yeah, and frequently we don't spend time in that habitat to get mm-hmm. like a real sense of what those of identifying those birds, which is a huge part of just general birding. Yeah. But do you want to talk about a a pelagic book that is particularly interesting or particularly, you know, noteworthy from your perspective? I had uh, Steve Howell's Petrels, Albatrosses, and Storm Petrels of North America. And I I really Mm -hmm. read that one a lot before I went out to the Outer Banks. uh, And that was just really cool. I learned a lot from that. And um, we actually recently reviewed Howell and Zufeld's new book, which I think is a a good compliment to that book. I think it's okay for me to say it's a little more focused on ID. Um, it's a little yeah. bit less of a reference book. Kate yeah. Sutherland reviewed that for us, and she's a really, really phenomenal birder, pelagic birder, pelagic guide. And so so the new one, Oceanic Birds of the World, is a photo guide. Right. So I guess those are my two. I know there are some other really nice reference books on pelagic birds, including from other parts of the world. But uh, I think those are the main two that I have. Yeah, those are my two favorites as well. And and for the same reasons that you mentioned, um, Howell's Petrels, Albatrosses, and Storm Petrels, the older book, um, is very much a reference book. It's And Oceanic Birds of the World is like something you throw in your backpack when you're going on the boat, whereas the first one is something that you would probably leave in the hotel room. Yeah. Right. There's also... Um, the Peterson reference guide to sea watching, which is really um, a guide to Eastern water birds when you're mm-hmm. sea watching on land, which is where I'm going to be. Um, <laughs> For the time being. yeah. <laughs> no, forever. Forever? <laughs> <laughs> Not going on a boat. <laughs> but it, it includes a mix of ducks, frigate birds, uh, storm petrels, and that's that's for a very specific activity, you know, if you yeah. are watching. So that's even sort of like a subset of a family guide. Yeah, you, you know, it reminds me a lot of uh, Jerry Ligori's Hawks at Every Angle and Hawks at a Distance mm-hmm. books because it's very much focused on seeing the birds in the way that you were going to see them. Whereas some of these other guides are those still the sort of classic full page, big picture you know, not necessarily how you're going to see it in the in the field, you know, the, the platonic ideal of a bird observation, whereas things like Jerry Ligori's books and, of course, uh, Sea Watching are, this is how you're really going to see yes, it. Yes, I love the uh, Ligori books, Hawks at a Distance and Hawks from Every Angle. They're highly specialized, but it's pretty amazing. There are so many raptor identification guides, there and really these come out and fill a niche. That no one knew we needed, except talk watchers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cameron Cox gave a presentation um, about this book a few years ago here for our local bird club in Pittsburgh, and it was really good. And I mean, I've seen a few people say that, uh, especially people who who see watch a lot, or you know, they um, they do point counts and all that kind of stuff. Um, that that this was really kind of a game changer. This book's. Um, the the Peters- yeah, the, sea- the Peterson reference guide to sea watching Eastern waterbirds in flight uh, by Cameron Cox and Ken Barons. And Ken Barons, ironically, is a Pittsburgher, but I've never met him. I believe he lives in Madagascar now. Cameron Cox was the one who came here and did a really nice presentation for us. And mm-hmm. he kind of walked through like 
uh, beginning, you know, not so hard ducks and then advanced and then, um, and then super advanced. Uh, and one thing that I was kind of thinking about just, just flipping through the book right now is one thing that's nice about these books is not for nothing. They, a lot of times have some really nice photos, including some photos that are like, a lot of times they have a like sunset type photos where the bird is silhouetted and mm-hmm. they're ostensibly for being like, okay, this is how you can ID this, whatever, like Jaeger or something when it's a silhouette, but it's actually just like a really beautiful sunset photo. So uh, <laughs> that's something that you don't really get. Uh, so in, at least in the majority of field guides is this sort of like variation of photos and the photos are also yeah a lot of times includes more habitat and environment, whereas field guides a lot of times depict birds separated from their environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a really phenomenal example of that is a book that we have talked about already or mentioned at least, but not talked about in depth. Uh, Michael O'Brien, Richard Crosley, and Kevin Carlson's The Shorebird Guide, which to me was one of the first times that this type of book made a big splash in the birding community. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and it has a lot, I mean, it, it is, it is, a ton of absolutely gorgeous photos of some of these shorebirds in some incredibly scenic places like on the tundra where they breed or, you know, frequently Cape May. Cause that's where all three of those guys are. And there's a sunset or a sunrise on the cover. Right, right on the right. cover. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's a gorgeous looking book. Like the book is beautiful. In addition to having all these beautiful photos of birds that typically are not portrayed that way in typical field guides. Mm-hmm. Well, this was the book that also started to popularize the idea of jizz, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that's you know the Cape May School of Birding, of course. Another really fascinating thing about this book that I love is that they actually tell where and when the photos were taken mm-hmm. so that you could see you know what a greater yellow legs looks like in the middle of molt, which is not a plumage that you typically see in normal field guides just because of mm-hmm. space constraints. Anyway, I can't say enough about the shorebird guide. It's really one of my favorite examples of this of this genre. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Another another one we haven't touched on while we're while we're focused on books mostly about identification is uh Sherry Williamson's Hummingbirds of North America, which is another Peterson. Mm-hmm. Um and that one's really nice too. I mean, I think like, you know, if you you want to get in the the hummingbird game, especially if you live in a place like Arizona where Sherry Williamson lives, um this is this is a this is an essential one to add. Yes. Yeah, I don't have that one in my own library unfortunately. I need to uh I need to fix this with the next, you know, Amazon me, gift card that I get either. for some sort of holiday gift. I have the Hummingbirds of North America, the photographic guide by mm-hmm. Steve NG Howell who I think has written like 50% of the books laid out. I was just thinking like that. Yeah. Stephen G. Howell is like, like the king of family specific guides. Yes. Amazingly prolific writer. And obviously the person that thinks a lot about, you know, how to make these guides better. Um, I think Sherry Williamson's book is notable for another reason is that we don't see a ton of women in this game. But I think it's notable that, uh, you know, Sherry Williamson has absolutely made a name for herself as, you know, the hummingbird person Mm -hmm. in the ABA area, if not, you know, the Americas. You know, her book shows that she has this, you know, broad wealth of knowledge. Those Peterson guides are just really good. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we can also add the uh, 
Peterson Reference Guide to Sparrows by Rick Wright, mm-hmm. uh, which has more of a natural history bent than mm-hmm. an identification guide. Um, for identification, I like Sparrows of the United States and Canada, the Photographic Guide by David Beadle and James Rising. So again, this is an example of two books that complement each other. Yes. I mean, since we brought up Rick's book, Rick's book is so cool. Probably more than anyone else, he has this just masterful ability to interweave his species accounts mm-hmm. with ornithological and birding history in a way that you just learn. They're just it's just such a joy to like flip through and and read about not just the birds, but the history of how we understand these birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there is a lot of information about identification, too. We talked about that at the end of last year, Donna. Uh, that book was on both of our best of yes. 2019 lists, mm-hmm. and, and for good reason, obviously. We've talked a lot about bird books, these sort of family guides with a very North American focus, obviously. So we are all three North American-based birders. But there are some really great ones that are for other parts of the world as well, and one that is actually kind of difficult to get in the United States that I definitely want to point out the books that are written and illustrated by Fancy Peacock, a South African uh, birder and bird artist Mm -hmm. uh, called Chamberlain's Waiters. So Chamberlain's Waiters is one of them. He has also Chamberlain's LBJ, as best as I can determine. What what is Chamberlain? It's like a a hardware Uh, store. Yes. Chamberlain, famous for hardware. So I I guess David Chamberlain is a birder. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's, he sponsors these two books by uh, fancy peacock. And um, I mean, they're, they're phenomenal. Like his, he's as an artist, fancy is, is unreal. And um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to Southern Africa anytime soon, but I love having these books just because they're, they're so beautiful as guides. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I got them because I think they're just a great example of if you just give somebody very talented leeway to do whatever they mm-hmm. want. Um, it just shows so much imagination in how all the information is presented. Um, in a way, it's sort of overloaded with too much information. It's a lot in the way some of those old world guides are, like the Collins Guide, with like tons of right. of lines and notes on the on the illustrations and stuff. But uh, boy, it's it's really really fantastic. He gives you feather close ups, tarsal close ups. Little boxes about taxonomy of stilts. It's just fun to read it. Yeah, and while his um his guide to LBJs is not strictly speaking a family guide, it's essentially a guide to all the small brownish passerines of uh, of Southern Africa. Um, it's really great too. Yes. I mean, it's probably the it's probably the best book out there of all the field guides to Southern Africa on um you know cisticolas and the you know, warblers and larks. and whatnot. It's just really, fa- yeah, larks, exactly. All those little kind of difficult birds. I wonder if anyone will ever do an LBJ guide for North America. That is a, a route that needs to be covered. Who would do it? Who could? Mm-hmm. Catherine Hamilton comes to mind yes. off the top of my head. <laughs> I was thinking yeah. of Catherine, too. <laughs> if, if for no other reason, because uh, Fancy has a lot of pictures of museum skins in his guide. <laughs> and that's kind of Catherine's thing. Do you know of any other guides that you think are especially good that cover birds that are outside of outside of North America, outside of the ABA area? Well, there's the uh, Birds of Paradise and Bower Birds and Identification Guide. 
by Phil mm-hmm. Gregory, uh, which just came out, illustrated by Richard Allen. This is a book I love because I don't know if I'll ever be able to see these birds in person. Yeah. So I just love looking at the uh, art. I have one also that's sort of like transitional, so to speak, um, in terms of like covering North America or not. Because, and I don't know if there's another one that has this sort of coverage. It's Warblers of the America. So it's the entire Perlude family. And it's an mm-hmm. identification guide. And this one is by it is by John Curson, David Quinn, and David Beadle. And it's a little outdated now, just like flipping through, see some things like, oh, that's not true anymore. But it's really fun because like we love the Perula Day in all the wood warblers in the ABA um, and in the ABA area. But there's like a bunch of other members of the family that, you know, some are nondescript and some are really quite gorgeous and they're um, not highly migratory or maybe they're like altitudinal migrants. Yeah, there's some really neat ones in the Caribbean that we don't, we yeah. don't get enough, don't get enough attention from okay. ABA birders. Yeah. yeah, just flipping through when I was, <laughs> when I was flipping through the book this morning, I found a, an old note that I made of like, I, you know, I felt compelled enough to like take a piece of note paper out and like make a short list of the non-ABA area wood warblers that I really wanted to see someday. Uh, and it's like 15 of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this one's really cool because you get to see, I like it because you get to see um, our, in quote, uh, wood warblers alongside other ones from from South America and the Caribbean. And mm-hmm. Mexico has some really, really cool ones, Guatemala. Uh, so also like the highlands of Costa Rica has some really n- nice ones in Panama. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a cool one. I think I picked up my copy at a secondhand bookstore. And I think that's something to be noted that some of these guides go out of print really quickly. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a good idea to have like a list of out of print books you want. And every so often check Amazon for their secondhand books, um, a books. That's how I got uh, turns of Europe and North America. Oh, okay. Mm. Which had been recommended uh, by a friend of mine so highly, and I love turns. And they were selling for over $100, but I, I just oh, wow. kept looking, and I finally found an affordable copy, which is in really good condition. That's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, maybe there's just not an interest in goals and turns because you know famously the peterson field guide to goals Mm -hmm. uh by john dunn and steve hg howell i feel like we're covering him a lot these days is is kind of famously out of print and really difficult to find and if you go to like amazon can you find it for like a ridiculous cost like well over a hundred dollars yeah and it went out of print very quickly very quickly yeah yeah i have i feel very fortunate that i have a copy of it in my, on my bookshelf, but it is a uh, you know it goals are sort of a natural group of birds to cover this way because they can give you so many different looks. Frequently, they have you know multiple years with different plumages in every year, and it's difficult to fit all those plumages in a field guide. And so, having the space in a book like that to kind of spread out and show all the different looks of goals and all the different various molts and ages and all that stuff is really fortunate. And um, that's a really good one. It's a shame that it is not in print anymore. Klaus Olson's Goals of the World guide came out last year, the year before, do you recall when it was? But that one was also um, considered very highly for the same reasons. Yeah. Olson and Larson are the authors also of Turns of Europe and North America. Oh, okay. at Princeton University Press. 
So I think we'd have to ask someone from the publishing world why this happens. <laughs> it takes a nuanced birder to appreciate it. But I, I did want to emphasize, you just never know, you know, go into every secondhand bookstore. You know, I know the Cape May uh, store um, always has a truck with used books on it. But um, sometimes you can get good finds in weird places. Before we before we move on, uh, I asked the question on Twitter mm-hmm. uh, yesterday or the day before we recorded this, uh, asking for what other people liked and what do they what they think makes a great family guide. I want to just kind of note some of those responses. A lot of the similar books that we have already talked about here. Bridget Butler, a recent uh, guest on the ABA podcast, uh, noted the Warbler Guide and the Shorebird Guide. Aaron Klanderman, Peterson's Warbler Guide. Anya Auerbach says, Oceanic Birds of the World. Jacob Drucker chimes in saying, uh, yes, but the Albatrosses and Petrels book. Oh, no, he brings up a different book. Uh, Michael Brooks, Albatrosses and Petrels Across the World, uh, which which I'm not familiar with, but definitely one to keep an eye out for. Jacob also mentions Antpitters and Gnat Eaters. Mm-hmm. That's very similar to the Birds of Paradise and Bowerbirds yes, book yes, that came yes. out last year. But I, I, I came out. to mention it because Jacob was one of the people who recommended I review that book. So, Oh, yeah, by Harold <laughs> Greeny. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, minimal cookie cutter templates for species accounts, lots of nuance. That's always nice. That is the one thing that you can sort of do. We talked about that mm-hmm. a little bit earlier, how you can show the habitat and stuff and show the birds in different postures and whatnot. Danny Christensen says, Wheeler's Birds of Prey. Uh, the two-volume series that came out a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, Reber's Waterfowl of North America, Europe, and Asia mm-hmm. for great species plates. As always, all of the books we mentioned uh, in this episode will be linked to in the show notes. There are quite a few. It'll be a long list. I'll have to like <laughs> write everything down when I'm editing this episode. Uh, some really good ones. Um, thank you again, uh, Frank and Zagari, Donna Schulman. So much fun to talk books with you. We'll do it again soon. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye, all. Bye, guys. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoyed this podcast or any of the other free resources that the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. You can get our magazine, you get discounts to our partners, and you get my great appreciation for noting this podcast is one of the reasons that you did it. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Jenny McFarland and Richard Frey of Rio Rico, Arizona, Tara Hudson of Columbus, Ohio, Amanda Mutchler of San Antonio, Texas, and David A. Bailey and family of Horace, North Dakota, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you for that and welcome, or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's been working on a family-specific guide to raptor references in 80s pop bands. He's calling it Hawks at Every Bangle. Technical production is by John Lowry. He's been on eBay all the time looking for Fonsi Peacock's Chamberlain's Waiters, but so far he's just finding all these waterproof trousers worn by the British Prime Minister in the years leading up to WW2. Evidently, old Neville used to wander in the Thames to clear his mind. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who co-host a podcast called Sea Watching, dedicated to the idea that the letter C is the most worthless letter in the English alphabet. Seriously, just use a K or an S. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Instagram at American Birding Association or Twitter at 
ABA. We're busy marking up our copy of Stevenson and Whittle's Paralid book for our friend Jody Allaire, introducing The Wobbler Guide. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.